portion of the company pin Cause you know where that'll get you to I don't go fishing off the company pin There's nothing but heartbreak where the bar's from hell Nothing but heartbreak where the bar's from hell the American Band, from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Earlier this year, we produced our fourth season under the title The World's Work, seven episodes on the tiresome history, exasperating present, and potential futures of work and its cultural representations, with attention to forms like autofiction, phenomena like The Great Resignation, and cultural products like The New Yorker, Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, and Kim Stanley Robinson's cli-fi novel, Ministry for the Future. Throughout that season, I used these intros to summarize Mark Twain's relevance to labor history, anti-work and post-work politics, and capitalist realism, so I won't belabor that point further. Rather, I suggest that this episode operates as a link between the spring and the fall seasons, as we discuss the representation of work in cinematic and televisual culture, particularly on HBO, with two scholars who are publishing books this month on the intersection of anti-work politics, labor theory, and motion picture. Both books are published by Common Notions Press, a house committed, as they put it, to timely reflections, clear critiques, and inspiring strategies that amplify movements for social justice. And both authors, are also founding editors of the Blindfield Journal of Cultural Inquiry, which they discuss in the latter portion of our conversation. Joanna Isaacson is a professor of English at Modesto Junior College and author of Stepford Daughters, Tools for Feminists in Contemporary Horror. She also contributes to and edits the horror section of Blindfield and sometimes contributes to Horror Homeroom, including a forthcoming essay about HBO's The Baby, inspired by the conversation that takes place in this episode. Also, if you are in San Francisco next week, look for her multimedia book launch at the Roxy Theater in tandem with a screening of the 2014 horror film, It Follows. Madeline Lane McKinley is a lecturer in writing in the humanities at UC Santa Cruz and author of Comedy Against Work, Utopian Longing in Dystopian Times. Other recent work has appeared in Boston Review, Cultural Politics, Los Angeles Review of Books, Post 45, and of course, Blind Field. For more about our guests, as well as a bibliography of works discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash cringe. At the outset, I want to thank you both for sharing advanced copies of your books. And very few books have spoken so viscerally to my lived experience in recent years as a pandemic teacher in an embattled profession with two kids under three and my wife, Michelle, staying home disproportionately responsible for the care work, both of us feeling increasingly isolated, reduced almost exclusively to our function as laborers and parents and spouses. And so these books really, you know, grabbed me both in terms of their relationship to media studies and to literary studies and cultural studies and heterodox political economy, all things that are part of my research, but then also just in terms of the I think, collective trauma that we are all undergoing and that may be disproportionately put upon people with children. To listeners, I expect this will be redundant by the time we finish recording, but reading these books in tandem will only heighten your appreciation of each of them. They're both being published by Common Notions Press, and both are scheduled for release before the end of November. So, you know, 
pre-order now. <laughs> but let's start with one of the most obvious intersections. Both of you characterize your work as coming at a nexus of Marxian and feminist theory, and particularly theorizing the contemporary cultural forms by which the incongruities and injustices of capitalist social reproduction are being made visible. And the genres you each focus on, comedy and horror, might seem somewhat incongruent, and maybe we, we can get to that as well, but I wanna start by asking for each of you, what is social reproduction? and what makes the genres you're examining so appropriate, and I think both of you are arguing, also increasingly popular, for representing social reproduction? I guess you can kind of think about labor as having separate spheres, even since the inception of capitalism, where what has been called labor has really been like the labor that has been done that's waged and initially was coded male, was coded masculine, was done at what's called like the point of production and was valued a little bit more highly than all its conditions of possibility that were made by generally women who did unwaged reproductive labor that supported the male wage labor. And Sylvia Federici talks about how like the transition from feudalism to capitalism to like get people to do this waged work and to give up the struggle to fight against the enclosure of land. It was sort of necessary to wrench women into work that was devalued and to kind of offer that almost like a bribe to men who would then concede to do this awful work because they basically had a female servant to kind of make it a little bit easier. Basically, that has transformed with different stages of capitalism. And I think both Madeline and my books are about, you know, where that's at at the present, right? And how the old model of thinking that as a woman at home doing housework is not the main way that we see social reproduction. We see all the kind of qualities that were developed around social reproduction in the home kind of naturalizing of caregiving, the naturalizing of love, the kind of devaluation of, of education, health, sociality has been degraded for hundreds of years. And now, even as it becomes waged, it's still coded feminine and it still enables the mistreatment of workers through gendered logic. I, I think it would be, we'd be hard pressed to not see that in almost all the interesting culture of right now. Even if it's denied or repressed, that's still that repression is the conditions of thinking about genre and, and, and representation right now. For me, horror, which is always something that is geared towards negation, geared towards the repressed, geared towards things we can't talk about. One of the key things about social reproduction is that's naturalized, meaning that we can't theorize it, right? We're not allowed to talk explicitly about it or like the ideology would be broken and we'd have to start considering it more valuable. So horror, which is one of the key genres, and I think comedy does this too, of, of the repressed, has been in the foreground or in the forefront of kind of exploring this a little bit more explicitly except for daughters is really going through different aspects of social reproduction thinking about it like you know the precarization of labor is kind of modeled on this kind of housewife family model i don't know i'm such a horror geek that i think everything cool is horror and i think a lot of the comedy that Malin writes about is just totally horror and on hbo i just want to add that i think we both are thinking about social reproduction as a kind of leaky category. We're thinking about horror and comedy as genres, but also as just as modes. I mean, I think you're thinking about it as a mode of negation, just as much as participating in genre theory. And I don't know, methodologically, that kind of mirrors how we're thinking about labor and social reproduction and where the kind of unboundedness of, of that category. One of the things that you know, I, I was particularly fascinated by is how more and more work is specifically in the COVID era taking on this kind of logic of housework, which is nothing new whatsoever, but the way in which comedy becomes a mode of reflection 
but how that logic of housework, how, how those logics of gender leak out into other kinds of work that may appear otherwise, maybe more like traditional, quote, productive labor or, you know, waged work of various sort, that affective experience and perception that we describe that's so pivotal to housework, this like invisibilization and naturalization actually lurks everywhere. <laughs> There's obviously like so many ways to periodize that and think about that, but really just thinking about the affective experience. I think that comedy helps me do that. I think that when we're talking about comedy and horror, we're talking about two aspects of the same thing. It's really funny. Joe can watch these things. I'm not able, what we watch, there's like so little overlap, but what we're drawing out from these texts is so similar, right? So we're, we're finding these shared problems of gendered labor throughout both of these cultural modes right now. Yeah, and we've, we've kind of chatted before about how like there's certain things like camp and the excess of both of these and reflexivity that are really shared and that, you know, you can even see like a lot of horror right now. It's all like comedians that are in horror, even Absolutely. when it's not horror comedy, but that's where you can kind of see that there's almost a convergence too which the baby obviously is kind of a, an example of. The leakiness of these two into one another is something that I find really fascinating, especially as somebody who is a frequent consumer of comedy and a far less frequent consumer of horror. But one of the ways that I have always taught these two genres to my students or sort of asked them to begin thinking about them is that they they both might be categorized in part by the physiological response that they are expected to produce right that you go into a comedy expecting to laugh right and you go to a horror movie expecting to have some sort of physical response whether that's you know hiding your eyes or jumping in your seat or getting goosebumps or whatever, that both of these genres have an implicit promise that you are going to have a physical reaction to them. And I love the idea that maybe this is also what binds them together <laughs> through a more complicated set of physical responses, including something like cringiness, which I think is definitely one way of thinking about how workplace comedy has moved in recent decades. And that increasingly there's a focus on forms of humor that don't just elicit laughter, may not elicit laughter at all, but elicit some other kind of response, one that may start to move towards the kinds of responses that we are conventionally associating with horror. And so I'd love to hear you sort of talk a little bit more about how that leakiness might be located in a contemporary turn, right? That both of you would allude at various moments to how these genres are shaped and reshaped post-2008. And in, in Madeline's case, towards sort of micro-epochs that have followed over the last 15 years. And so what do you think makes these contemporary genres unique and therefore reflecting some of the peculiarities of social reproduction in this time? My book is called Step for Daughters because Step for Wives is one of these originary feminist horror movies, as is like Rosemary's Baby or something. And these are where the terror is in the home, right? It's the haunt, it's almost like a house haunted by domesticity and a woman trapped in there. You know, at that time, the sort of imaginary horizon was like Betty Friedan saying, well, get out of the house and into the workplace and you'll be fine. So I love like things like Hereditary and the Babadook where they do have jobs. Both of the women that are trapped in their horrible domestic house that are they're being haunted and terrorized in. Well, with Amelia and the Babadook, her job is this precarious care work at an old age home where the same kind of wearying, soul demolishing work she's been doing at home, she's doing with her patients. And the kind of monster she becomes the visceralness in the Babadook is like, she is just like, every time you see her face, it's like careworn, it's droopy. She's like so tired. All she wants to do is sleep. And I noticed in your conclusion, Madeline, you talk about sleep as a kind of release from all this. 
But when she's the Babadook, she's like galvanized and alive and terrifying. And that's not just an escape from her domestic life, but from her work life too, where every time she, you know, she's supposed to care for all these six people, but when she tries to call in sick to take care of her unraveling life, they're like, nope, we're cutting your shifts. That's how valuable and essential your, your work is. Hereditary, she's working from home, her wage job and her unwage job, and both of them are really like not helping her. So I think the kind of domestic haunted house trope is really changing that way. And the baby, um, I, I've been kind of obsessing about like how it got canceled because people couldn't make sense of it. <laughs> But I think that's because it's a lot harder for us to imagine how to do this representation. I don't think HBO has quite figured it out yet, like the way that feminized labor and terror works now. So it, every critic says, oh, that plot line, there's a plot line in the 70s where this lesbian is gaslighted, forced to have a child, becomes locked in her room, like in the yellow wallpaper. We all know this story. It's very gothic and horrifying. And that part is everyone's cool with. The present storyline, it's these millennials who are ambivalent about motherhood and the baby gets transferred from one to the other and everybody has a different relationship to it. And that accumulation of all these different kind of horrors and anxieties we have, like you were talking at the beginning during the pandemic about loving your kid and also being overwhelmed and also having to do your job. Like it's hard to narrate that really well. Um, I think in a way, the repetition and the kind of incoherence is an interesting way to narrate it, but I don't think uh, HBO had the patience. It, it also may have fallen into a, an unfortunate moment in HBO's corporate history with the Discovery merger. And I'd be interested to know, since I know this is something you've been thinking a little bit about, Madeline, how you interpret the programming choices at, at HBO may be, you know, are shifting in response to this moment of conglomeration that we've talked about in previous episodes. But also that show, you know, really appeals to a you know a particular moment of concern about the future of children and i wonder to what extent it it offers a sort of set of bifurcations like we've talked about with previous shows in this series where you can look at it as perhaps narrating the problems of the dissolution of the family or whatever or you can see it as far more you know satirical and nuanced and actually quite creatively thinking about forms of social reproduction and the peculiar forms of social reproduction that move back and forth through Natasha's social life or personal life or domestic life and, and all these things become indissoluble from one another in some ways specifically because of the baby. Mm. It's hard to know exactly how it fits in the pre present landscape of not just HBO, but sort of streaming TV. You do this sort of very interesting to me, micro periodization of what has happened to comedy. And I, mm -hmm. whether you want to embed that in HBO particular or just the, the broader landscape of American workplace TV or workplace comedy, I'd love to, to hear you think about that question too. Both of our books are, are as you said, post-financial crisis to present and kind of thinking about breaking that into a couple of micro periods through our, you know, genres of choice. When I was asked to, to come on this, I kind of took it on as like a homework assignment. Okay, well, what are the workplace comedies that HBO has done? Where did that start? Jumping to to the middle, I'd I'd love to talk about, you know, Larry Sanders and Curb and things like that. But there is this like really interesting period of ambivalence that starts to happen around the financial crisis in comedy. So you have these really well-established cringe comedies, right? Curb basically congeals that, but I would say Larry Sanders starts it. And they're both setting up this template for looking not just industry insider narratives, but really thinking about the entertainment in industry doing this kind of imminent critique. And that's kind of the the spiel for HBO comedy for a while, other than, you know, there's sketch comedy, but they're working through this genre. And I like the question of whether or not this is like a workplace sitcom, which you, you posed to me when you invited me on. 
I'm still not not sure of it, but what's interesting is like right around the the period of the the financial crisis, and I would say to present, although I think that this is turning around more recently, there's a real ambivalence towards the inter entertainment industry, right? You have like Veep, Silicon Valley, but also this proliferation of kind of dramedies. Sex in the City probably started, and, and that might be a kind of gap in my thinking because I haven't really watched it. But Girls, Looking, Bored to Death, these are all these kind of interesting hybrid programs. And I don't think that it's really recovered from that. I mean, there's an interesting question about the status of comedy and prestige there too. I make the case in my book pertaining to like the, the Sopranos rewatch that half of us did <laughs> during the pandemic. Perhaps at last we're able to finally like really engage with the show as a comedy. That's become a kind of opening. You know, at the time it was all about Freudian, maybe Shakespearean, high literary status. Then you have The Wire, the really explicitly Dickensian moves of that show. That's kind of describing that moment. But we can look back at this programming and see comedy as consistent tension in all of, all of these shows. But during that 10-year period, there's very few programs other than Curb on HBO that are doing that imminent critique of the entertainment industry. And I suspect that it's HBO's kind of unwillingness or inability to really think about itself during that time. You have the kind of mainstreaming of prestige that's happening on basic cable. You have then after that, you know, Netflix, Amazon, now they have their prestige content, they're in the Emmys, what even is television anymore, right? So that claim on it's not television, it's HBO. Well, well, nothing's television anymore. So what, what the hell is this? <laughs> I think that's kind of happening during that period. And maybe it's over. I really think that Barry and Hacks are kind of a return to form in terms of HBO's willingness, at least, to look in on itself, look in on the entertainment industry and, and to think out how it works. That was so important to its brand of prestige comedy with the Larry Sanders show pulling back the curtain and dissecting this like very familiar network programming. And I don't know if that's necessarily what Hacks or Barry are doing, but there is a kind of desire to think inward that I was just trying to kind of map out. Yeah. There's a couple of threads I sort of wanted to pick up on there. One, for listeners, the history of HBO includes a long period of time in which they are explicitly opposed to doing scripted comedy. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, essentially throughout the 80s and well into the 90s, the HBO executive team is overtly opposed to producing a sitcom because they don't think they can compete in that genre with the broadcast networks. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they lose out on some massive hits. They actually air something that looks remarkably like the Roseanne House at the top of one of her stand-up performances on their network. And then that, of course, goes to ABC and becomes a massive hit. They actually have a sort of production relationship with both Friends and Everybody Loves Raymond because the writers and showrunners had sort of existing contracts with HBO to do you know, stand-up and other kinds of programming and were released, but with the agreement that HBO would get some sort of stake in those productions. And so it had this very weird relationship to the sitcom, mm -hmm. but then sort of dives in with, I think, Curb in particular, maybe being the landmark moment, a kind of half hour run by somebody who was you know, closely associated with a massive hit sitcom, Seinfeld, but is also peering inward into the industry. And that's going to become a model that they go back to over and over again, you know, set in LA, somehow associated or, or Southern California, somehow associated with the entertainment industry, if not Hollywood specifically, and using those locations locations and also kind of poking fun at exactly the set of characters that also HBO relies on to make its scripted programming. Mm -hmm. 
you brought up Barry, and although it had not occurred to me until now, on the one hand, it's it's following that model, right? That mm-hmm. that Barry is trying to become an actor in Hollywood. He's going to acting classes. He's surrounded by wannabe actors. It's representing the precarity right, of the moment, right? These are gig workers. They're on the outskirts of a professional class. They have these aspirations, and in some cases, uh, you know, very gendered aspirations. But then also, you know, Barry is having to commit violence on the side, right? And so mm-hmm. the this half hour sort of pseudo sitcom is also a kind of thriller <laughs> with lots of, you know, moments of action uh, and so on and so forth. And so this suddenly, you know, just this moment strikes me as another place where your two interests are kind of coming together. And this, you know, this is a leaky form, right? right. That, you know, that people might go to as the conventional HBO industry insider comedy, something like Curb or The Comeback is something you, you discuss in uh, in your book, Madeline, mm-hmm. that I think is re- a really interesting example of this from a previous era. But then Barry also has this element of throwing us into another genre unexpectedly, in part to show the tension of overwork, right? <laughs> that this guy is, is constantly having to live two lives, both as the aspiring actor and as the organized criminal, the assassin who's trying to get out. Absolutely. I want to talk about that with Barry. Also, I'm really fascinated by this point that you brought up about the unscriptedness, about unscriptedness being so much a part of the brand of comedy. And I loved your discussion about the rehearsal with Olivia Stowell bringing up that that precise point about the erasure of the writers from that program. And it seems, I mean, there is a gendering of writing, right, that's going on throughout. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that with Larry Sanders also. I clearly want to talk about that because I think it has like a really intense anti-worker politics, um, that show, but that's really targeted at writers. The writers in that show are lazy, never doing their jobs. There's only three of them or maybe four, right? Janine Garofalo, like famously just kind of stopped appearing in that writer's room, but she was probably the one who did all of the work, I would imagine. A little aside here, Madeline alludes to Gian Garofalo's final appearance as Paula on The Larry Sanders Show. Having become a film star in the mid-90s, Garofalo was moving on, but the manner in which her character was written off the show befits its unsettling vision of Hollywood, anticipating even the Me Too era. After Paula is promoted to producer, Sanders showrunner Artie, played by Rip Torn, feels threatened, leading to this queasy interaction between Paula and Larry. I want you to know what a great job you did today. Thank you. But um, I, I can't do this to Artie. Wait a minute, are you firing me? Look, I, I, I'll, I'll do anything I can for you, and if you want your old job back... I don't want my old job back! I don't believe this. I don't blame you for being angry. I'm sorry. I, I, I just can't. What, did I push too hard? Did I, do, did I do something wrong? Did I not produce the show? It isn't you. It's, it's him. He's a big fucking baby, and I guess he just can't handle it. So is the job at the mommies filled? The mommies? I don't know. I don't know. It's probably still open. Who the fuck wants to produce the mommies? Come on. Listen, um, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something that I, I wouldn't tell you if you were, weren't leaving. I, I happen to really like you. I mean, um, you know, I'm not a happy man. And I wouldn't say this to someone, you know, that I was working with. But I really like you, Paula. Okay. So maybe we can go out to dinner or something when this is all, you know. I don't think so. In the episode's final scenes, Artie apologizes to Paula and gives her her job back, much to Larry's dismay, as it means he can no longer date her. The episode ends, and no further explanation is given for Paula's departure, just another talented woman disappearing after receiving too much attention from the boss. But there is a kind of derogatory vision of of the writers, and then we jump to Curb, and 
the whole mythos of that show is really about its unscriptedness, which isn't even true, right? But it doesn't need writers that Larry writes bullet points and kind of tells you where the scene is supposed to land and the, the actors feel their way through that, right? So I'm not trying to completely transpose gender onto that, but there is a gendering of writtenness of the writing of comedy that I find so interesting there. I think Barry, just to return to that too, is like most similar, I think, to Extras, which I know is a BBC crossover with HBO, but really about the cringe of their ascent mm -hmm. by the second, I think it's the second season of Extras. He's got the actual sitcom and then he has his, are you having a laugh tag phrase, right? And he's just completely sold out. I think that cringe is a helpful overlap category for Joe and I just to reiterate that. But like, that's, that's really the trajectory of Barry too. You know, he's going on a particular path and you really don't want to go down it with him. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's that well, like the Sopranos <laughs> path that you brought yeah, up earlier. Absolutely. So I think there's something interesting there. I also think that Barry is a lot about this moment of television in crisis. I think a lot of it's trying to be, cinema mm -hmm. in like a really explicit way i was just watching a really intense chase scene in the the season finale that just felt like bullet really cinematic mm -hmm. trying to integrate that into its vision of of prestige comedy in a way that i don't think these earlier comedies are at all invested in right and that might be another reflection of this identity crisis that hbo and all of these streaming platforms are having right now is like are we going to try to reinvent cinema? Or are we going back to a kind of network mentality where everyone has their own platform, which is kind of like what channels used to be or networks used to be, right, with their own kind of brand insularity. So I think Barry is playing out all of those tensions in very interesting, vivid ways. I'm so sorry that I, I didn't make this suggestion because it didn't occur to me until we were talking. But as you were mentioning the way in which that show is is having a relationship to cinema and perhaps a dying form of cinema it also reminded me one of the you know highly choreographed cinematic scenes is his fight with the nine-year-old girl the sort of karate champion mm -hmm. who also is given this almost monstrous animalistic side right where she's sort of growling at him she's climbing the walls and seems to have almost a supernatural superhuman ability you know it's certainly a hat tip to action movies to bruce lee jackie chan etc but it, there also is undoubtedly a kind of horror element to it mm -hmm. and you know a gendered horror element and then also one that has about parenting right that she you know she is responding to his his fight with uh her father right, right? yeah yeah and um, i have seen some of barry but i haven't seen that but what you're saying about this kind of intersection of violence and precarity mm -hmm. yeah you're right it's really in horror all the kind of movies that i write about when i talk about emotional labor it's about this kind of convergence of violence and precarity like parasite obviously there's a way in which it's a zany comedy mm. And then it just keeps building and building and like they're actually succeeding, you know, and seeing the guy talks about it, the zaniness of this kind of, you know, precarious worker and they're moving through the hoops and then suddenly it explodes in violence, right? Which was always there and kind of as, a, as the only real horizon. Mm -hmm. And I write about this kind of independent film, I Blame Society which is really goes with what you got heavy. Neither of you have probably seen it, but it's like this woman who is in the film industry and she's trying to make a film. She plays herself, the director and writer plays herself and uses her name. And she's trying to shop around her manuscript for different films and she keeps getting rejected. And then one day one of her friends was like, you know, you're really tenacious. You would make a great serial killer. Basically, it builds into like as rejection. Oh, I'm going to make a movie about me being a serial killer. And then she just starts killing people and making a movie about herself doing it. But it's like exactly about this gendered precarity in the entertainment industry itself and how she's just like all her emotional labor and all the demands to be nice. Like the only real sort of alternative to that is to absolutely refuse <laughs> and become a sociopath and it's very funny and maps to the stars is another one that oh, i write yeah. about that's like a, a cronenberg thing where she's a personal assistant to this actress the kind of almost neo-feudal relationship of the personal assistant but so many other precarious jobs and are so feminized 
And that, again, plays out as a comedy of manners about LA and, and movie stars and new aginess, and then mm. just explodes into absolute Greek tragedy of violence. So that's a trend in the horror world as well. Interesting. The thought struck me as, again, as Madeline was talking about the period of HBO's prestige transformation, right? This period from essentially the, the launch of The Sopranos and Sex in the City in uh, 1998, 1999, uh, that then goes all the way up to the end of those shows right around the 2008 moment. And during that time, one of the most prominent and influential executives is Carolyn Strauss. Not given the same kind of credit that Chris Albrecht has retrospectively been given for leading HBO through that rise to prominence, but who was quintessential for all of those shows and who then moved out of the head office at HBO to become an executive producer, presumably to have less influence over the network, maybe, but more impact over her own career and the shows that she worked with. And one of those shows is The Baby. And I wondered if you would be interested in thinking about what The Baby is doing. I know you, you said that you you listened to Tenderbox, the massive oral history of, of HBO. I wondered how thinking about Carolyn Strauss's career impacted your reading of The Baby. It seemed like another reason that she was told to step down was she wasn't really doing her emotional labor properly. She mm. was like very serious and good at her job, but she wouldn't play like nice with the big stars and was kind of just really efficient and not giving people the the royal carpet treatment that the big ego is acquired. Mm-hmm. And I just see in the baby, again, this kind of idea of like, okay, all these women that are having babies in the present, the baby itself is a satanic baby for people who haven't seen it or seems like on the model of the satanic baby literally fell off a cliff into the arms of our protagonist and is sucking her life dry basically not letting her go and (laughs) and and we find that this baby has gone through all these other women mostly women of color i think that's also interesting that it's a white baby boy baby but you know she is herself is a successful millennial woman she has a a life and a, a nice apartment you know filled with things that kind of reflect her taste she's clearly competent you know, she's gone the Betty Friedan past. She's gotten out of the kind of gendered, stereotypical, domestic, subservient role that has not liberated her. And she's still repeating these patterns of feminized labor with this baby. And at a certain point, her apartment that was filled with like cooking and all the things that she loves just becomes completely taken over with baby stuff. And she's almost kind of got like a little signifiers of, of having to be a mammy or some kind of racialized servant to the baby, right? And different characters kind of go through this with Carolyn Strauss. She had made it to the highest, highest. She was clearly the most competent person in the world. Like the when you hear the shows that she worked on, they're like the best shows. It's still, you know, she got dismissed for somewhat gendered reasons in my head. So it does seem like, you know, there could be some allegorical relationship to her own trajectory or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, wow. One of the things I read about Tasha, who's the main one, in one of their views that was really negative is like how insufferable she is, how awful she is. Because she's like, bummed that her friends are having babies and are kind of abandoning their friendship circle and you know her life is a little bit in disarray but actually when you watch it in my opinion she's like charming as Mm-hmm. as I'll get out, you know. She's funny, yeah. But that reminds me of reading Tinderbox. There was one point where one woman pitched this show called like The Affair or something. And it was about a woman who had an affair, but she's supposed to be kind of like the protagonist. And the male execs at HBO were like, ah, that's awful. Why would you want to make a, a show about such an unlikable person? And it's like Tony Soprano was like the center of the show, you know, <laughs> like these are morally ambivalent people, you know, they, like, but mm-hmm. somehow when it's women mm-hmm. and I wonder, you know, again, with like Strauss not doing the, the right effective labor when so many of the men in there were just kind of, for lack of a better term, dicks, right? How low can they go? I mean, that's, that's across genres, <laughs> fascination of, of HBO content. Right. Yeah. Just you bringing that up, I think 
one of the things that we're both thinking about with genre is just why we go into horror or comedy in the first place. And one of the things that I think we're both thinking about is that we go there to escape work or out of a desire to escape work. And what do we find in these genres? Lo and behold, we're in work and it's instead this framework for thinking about that inescapability of work, as you often discuss, like a mode of negation, right? From that site of imminence. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting question with the baby and perhaps why I could not watch it. There's a lot of things that Joanna writes about that I have a very low threshold with <laughs> as a working mom at home. I'm terrorized by your descriptions of some of these movies in your book. And that's just... Alan like turns on all the lights while she reads my book. <laughs> but I think the baby is about that kind of claustrophobia, right? And that's being induced. And that's that can be a form of catharsis that can, can also be terrorizing. That's an interesting tension that we're thinking about with cringe too, right? Is like, where are we applying pressure? Where are we not? In some ways, HBO pulled its punches in a way with the baby. I know it's already super cringy for you, but for me, yeah. for horror, like, especially in like that kind of maternal horror, it's about abjection. And usually there should be like a lot of running milk and blood and gross stuff. Even the diaper changing scene is not that disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty safe. There's one scene where she's like, has a dream that the baby is sucking blood from her boob, but it's not very visually interesting. I think the very thing that can really make it unwatchable for most normal people, I think a maybe shortcoming of that show is that it's it's squeamish about the body horror or about playing with those conventions a lot of what's written about in horror studies about maternal horror is just like the ways that women get alienated from their own bodies right and have to deal with that whole part of the maternal and it's kind of pulling its punches mm -hmm. a bit with that i think i remember when i was in graduate school my very first graduate school roommate was an international student having his first experience of the united states and he was also under tremendous stress he was in the sciences and he was under tremendous stress to build a relationship with a lab with an advisor just in order to be funded for the next semester he had to really establish himself and at one point in that first semester he was invited by some other people in his program to go to the movies. And he decided, you know, I really need to, to do something social. I need to get out of the apartment, out of, off the campus. And so he went to see a movie. He didn't know what they were going to see. They were going to see one of the Saw movies. Oh, God. <laughs> Even I don't watch that. <laughs> Afterwards, he, he came home and he described it to me. And he described the sensation he felt when he left the theater of extraordinary relief that all of the many very real problems he was facing seemed relatively manageable by comparison to what was being depicted on film. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, as somebody who has, has never really had much aesthetic pleasure associated with horror, for the first time, I started to understand, like, oh, that's why this is popular. This is why it can work. And, and obviously, I, I also understand the sort of escapist tendencies with comedy. I still turn oftentimes at night to things like Friends and Seinfeld, mm -hmm. which sort of place us back in this you know, period of American decadence. And everything seemed simpler in part because I was a teenager, but also in part because the catastrophes of 9-11 and, mm -hmm. and the 2008 financial crisis hadn't happened, right? These are genres that oftentimes are associated with escapism. But as both of you point out, the sort of contemporary forms have a realist element to them mm -hmm. and are maybe engaging with a, a, you know, some version of Mark Fisher's idea of capitalist realism, but also particularly on the horror side, there is this magic realist element that maybe the depiction and the ways in which we might understand the present require us to actually recognize the totalizing elements of some sort of supernatural force or that the only way out might be through some sort of superpower right or some sort of monstrosity we take this workplace turn into comedy in the 2000s that I think remains to this day, right? That the most popular things are The Office and Parks and Rec and 30 Rock and Superstore, right? At the very time where we are working more and you would think that the escapism we would 
want would be to get away from these things. <laughs> Both of these genres are actually forcing us back into them for our cultural consumption. Why does that work? Why is it that at a moment when, when we are all working longer hours and feeling greater precarity, and as you mentioned, right, we would be looking for a kind of post-work, anti-work politic, we are immersed in the forms that are usually associated with escapism. Hmm. It's a fascinating question with the workplace sitcom, which is as old as sitcoms, right? Mm -hmm. Classically, this divide, which wasn't even real, right, between the domestic and the workplace sitcom that kind of gradually and especially in the 70s got just completely disrupted and blurred together. And mm -hmm. you find in the 80s and 90s that there's a little bit more ambiguity in those. But then there's a real return in the 2000s that also coincides with this mockumentary mm -hmm. modification, yeah. right? So we don't have a laugh track. And mm -hmm. I mean, I think that HBO is responsible for that, right? 1992, Larry Sanders removed the laugh track mm -hmm. the opening credits of the show are hank the jeffrey tambor character coaching you as the audience how to be a compliant audience member you folks see that flashing sign up there now that sign says applesauce no no, no. I'm, I'm kidding it says applause ray do me a favor could you flick that once all right now remember you're all, you're all a big part of the show, so the better you are, the better Larry is. Okay, now you see this gentleman? Now he's giving me this, uh, this sign, and it says, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right, here we go. This is exciting, isn't it? Part of the legacy, at least, of HBO comedy that's playing out in the networks. What's interesting to me, and I think that this is how Joanna thinks about horror, too, is that there's always this tension between critique and recuperation, which I discuss as like a utopian, dystopian dialectic of comedy, right? So we watch The Office precisely out of our hatred of work and our desire for work to be a constant prank and to not be productive <laughs> in our workplace, right? Those are clearly desires that, especially in the beginning of that show, are kind of mobilizing its comedy. But at the same time, it is also about the desire for work to be family, work to be the real home that we have. There's a kind of reconciliation to the social totality of work that's happening throughout. It's never one without the other, and it's playing out this tension of our desire for a post-work life or a life outside of work, that we're also using comedy to kind of deal with our own sense of impossibility or Fisher's capitalist realist thesis or something like this, right? That it's never one, one without the other, though. And I think Comedy is interesting to me because you can say stuff in comedy that you wouldn't say otherwise. For whatever reasons, we feel more comfortable if we're inhabiting a joke to be in touch with our hatred of our jobs, to be in touch with these things that we have to bury through the day. We go to comedy so that we have a little bit more wiggle room and freedom to think with those feelings. There's a little bit of estrangement and detachment that makes it feel comfortable. But by and large, especially we're thinking about this mockumentary turn on like NBC programming, workplace comedies, it is like highly recuperative, right? So the kind of politics of all of these shows are always about like reassimilating us into the workplace, making work more bearable, fun, friendly. Capitalist realism really coins what entertainment realism often is. It's very much a containing genre where we get this cycle of we're told over and over what is real and then we're disciplined by that what is knowable what is real what can be done in terms of reconciliation to the real that is defined for us by capitalist logic and i do think that the horror workplace is a real release from that logic often you know it really does explode the parameters of the real I don't want to contrast it to comedy, but you know, Madeline was editing a post 45 thing. So I wrote something for her for that on severance. And it's kind of almost in a way like the partner to the office where mm -hmm. the office kind of like culminates in 
Jim starting his own company that's like his own brand that's the kind of laid back brand and he's reconciled his, all his tension with office culture by creating this new office culture that's kind of a comedy office culture or whatever. Whereas Severance is just like, no, this whole logic of the office is this kind of horror show that's a jail that we don't <laughs> we don't even have the tools to recognize as a jail because we're so cut off from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, the world outside the office is no escape. It's another realm of work of reproduction that is also a jail that is mimicked on the logic of work. Mm -hmm. And it has to tell that real story through a very fantastic form, right? It can't, it can't tell that real, that, sto that story of realism through anything like what is generically called realism. Absolutely. Horror is often much better at getting at that, right? And comedy, I think, tends towards this kind of anesthetizing effect that we're, we're seeking out, right? Like, that's the promise of comedy. I'm going to go to work all day. I'm going to come home. I'm going to watch a sitcom to relax. The sitcom I'm watching is yeah. about a workplace too. <laughs> I'm not really escaping, right? But that, that yeah. there's that defanged quality to much of comedy. I've been watching Industry. I don't know if you've watched that, Matt. A couple episodes, not not a lot, but I have seen the, the premise at least, yeah. I read it as a comedy. I think, you know, obviously it's being packaged mm -hmm. as a drama series for, you know, award baiting or something like that. But it really is an interesting compliment to Severance. These people are going into their bankers, right? And they're constantly talking about their job is to move invisible things. <laughs> they don't quite know what they're doing in their job, right? Jargon that I'm sure is completely correct that I'm not very interested in like learning all of. But what's more interesting is the way in which the workers are becoming kind of desensitized to their own work and aren't really sure of what they're doing. The only thing that they do seem clear about is that they cannot be good people. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting trap that I see Severance playing out too. Is there's all this mystery and abstraction around their work, but there is that certainty that I can't do this and be a good person. <laughs> yeah, and I think another thing that comedy and horror might share is the escalation from the mundane to these heightened states. Mm -hmm. Where and and like Curb, I think does this, but I noticed in a lot, especially when I was writing about horror about like domestic wage work, like you'd start off doing just like domestic chores, like cleaning the bathtub, and then the next time, you know, in one film, this woman comes in, the bathtub's full of blood, and then the next time, her boss tells her to kill a cat. You know, it like just keeps <laughs> ratcheting up. And Maria Vishmit has this term, a reproductive realism. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it even converges with like the 70s experimental feminist films, which would show just kind of mundane tasks as horror, right? So that kind of ways of getting at the mundanity of work as this actual extraordinary thing that we can never recognize as extraordinary anymore through this like gradual ratcheting up of the of the tension around mm -hmm. it to me it seems like curb is a little like that like he's doing all these things that are like sort of annoying and then the cringiness of it he just keeps pushing it to the next level till you it's actually so want to crawl I, I actually find that much scarier than a lot of no it's so much that. about that i'm really interested i know we have to go pretty soon matt but what do you make of curb's longevity <laughs> in the hbo brand because <laughs> I just kept thinking about that as I was laying out this little genealogy I was making of the of the workplace sitcom. It's just, it will never end. It's such a consistent part of, of HBO. Yeah, that's, that's such a phenomenal question and not one that I, I really thought about. But the, for one thing, I think that it became obvious recently First, maybe with the Sopranos prequel movie, which was a critical darling and apparently did huge streaming numbers as well. And that maybe perhaps even more with the Sex and the City reboot, which was not that well received, but did such big numbers that HBO greenlit another season, even though the cast is wildly expensive, which is not something HBO usually has a lot of tolerance for. But both HBO and apparently the audience as well has some serious nostalgia for a kind of turn of the century golden age. Another example, I'm not sure anybody was clamoring for a Deadwood movie in 2019, but we got one. So for a long time, it was not 
in the HBO brand to look backwards. They didn't let series, even popular series, overstay their welcome, with the exception of some rare things like its football documentary show has been going on for like 25 years or something like that. But most of its scripted shows had a pretty short shelf life where they could sustain the kind of ratings that would justify their production costs. Mm -hmm. Prestige dramas in particular, right? They are not going to run them off the rails like, say, AMC does with The Walking Dead. (laughs) But now HBO seems kind of eager to remind us of its glory days. That might necessarily be a good sign. And Curb is one of the things that connects the present, the kind of archive phase of peak TV, to the mid-aughts pinnacle. It helped, no doubt, that Curb takes regular, sometimes rather long hiatuses. So it's been an active series since like 1999, I think. But they've only made 11 or 12 seasons in that time. Uh, As we discussed in the first couple episodes of this season, HBO is frequently performing both industry and internal politics, even in their tentpole dramas. But always, as J.D. Connor pointed out, with a degree of plausible deniability. And boy, is Larry David's brand of humor perfect cover for that. The irreverence, the narcissism, the hyperbolic escalation, as you said, any kind of meta commentary can kind of be shrugged off as irony, as just Larry being Larry. He's Boomer Nathan Fielder in that respect. The layers of absurdity and self-satire, they maybe soften the blow, but also the premise, much like Seinfeld, is basically evergreen. These out-of-touch, entitled characters constantly outraged by the changing face of Hollywood. You know, maybe that is an aspect of the industry insider form. It can adapt to new conditions, that if they are reflecting, mirroring the conditions of television production, Mm -hmm. then it can always evolve to fit the new meta narrative that particularly somebody who's making a talk show or a sitcom or something that is just going to stick with us, Mm -hmm. at least its formal elements unchanged, its sets unchanged largely. You can recreate it to fit the streaming era. You can recreate it to fit whatever conditions of construction there are. Absolutely. I think one of the things I was really thinking about with Curb is like part of its function for HBO is to really state what HBO isn't. Mm. Same way that I think the Larry Sanders show established. Yes. I was watching season seven. I was trying to introduce Curb to my 11 year old, which I was like, well, maybe I could show you this because it was around the Seinfeld reunion. But then I was so fascinated by the discussion in that series of episodes where they're going to do this Seinfeld reunion. Larry tells Jerry, we'll do it in a way that won't be lame. And that's like his promise to Jerry to get him into this reunion. I, I remember you talking about whenever a, a sitcom does a reunion episode, you say, isn't it pathetic? I said, pathetic? Desperate, pathetic. Desperate. When we would watch shows, when on other shows, we'd see them do reunion shows, you would look and you'd make that face that... You know, that very judgmental face of yours where you... I did? Where you see people who don't, do not have your aesthetic standards and you criticize and downgrade them for it. Just tell me, why isn't it lame? Why isn't it, isn't it lame? Because we'll do it in a way that won't be lame. Flash forward, that was in 2009, to like the pivotal role that the Friends reunion played in the HBO Max launch. Yes. Not only yeah. is like reflecting this moment of confusion, I think mm-hmm. that... In other episodes, you all have been talking about the last few years. Absolutely. That then we still have Curb, right? And so there's this right. role that that show plays in just creating mm-hmm. continuity where there isn't much. Almost disciplining the network in some exactly, way. Exactly. Yeah. I'm running out of time, so there's one question I definitely wanted to ask. You both wrote these books for a relatively new press, I believe, mm-hmm. and one which is maybe outside of the traditional academic press. And it sounds as though you wrote them with some sense of collaborative writing process. And I, <laughs> I was hoping you would you talk to us a little bit about that. What's some advice you can give to people who are working under the conditions of academic labor mm. that conform with a lot of the conditions of work you discuss in your books for creating something like the books that you, you both are publishing this year? Well, Joe and I have been working together for 
a long time in various capacities, but we started this journal in 2016, Blind Field, which is... 2015, I believe. Yeah, 2015, you're right. Just kind of a counter-institutional venue for Marxist feminist, anarchist, communist, cultural criticism that doesn't need to be academically situated or is in fact instrumentally non-academic. And I think, you know, I met Joe, my first year of grad school was 2008. And I think I'm the last generation of grad students who wasn't impacted by the financial crisis. I just watched the next cohorts being more and more and more screwed by tuition hikes, et cetera. And Joe is in, you were in your last year of grad school. And so I was in this place of, you know, what is the horizon here? And you were really instrumental for me in just figuring out how, how to survive the deterioration of the job market, but also make it kind of work for you. So I appreciate the opportunity of being able to be an independent researcher, not feeling beholden to my workplace for my research. That presents a kind of freedom. It's also precarious. I'm an adjunct lecturer. I'll never be tenure track probably. But I think we've been trying to kind of instrumentalize our marginalization <laughs> in interesting ways and that that's how I would characterize our like shared project to draw the resources from the academy but not write for it and to be thinking I understand my primary readers as workers academic workers included but not exclusively I did not know what graduate school was or academia was at all but I was very influenced by bohemian leftists sort of quasi-intellectual. I would read the LA Weekly, you know, where I was from, or Village Voice or things like that was really meaningful for me to have like a kind of structure of feeling that wasn't like the mainstream structure of feelings. Mm -hmm. I tried for some research track for a little bit, but I, I didn't have a whole lot of faith, though I started earlier than the real crisis hit, that that would happen for me. All along, Madeline and Kenon, who are the third person who started Blindfield and I, we had like writing groups together, reading groups, and then we, you know, had Blindfield. And to me, there's just this huge gap between academia and the popular, and mm -hmm. there just needs to be, I mean, so many people are feeling this precarity. So many people are ready to talk about that in kind of structural terms with Occupy, with Black Lives Matter. There's a huge mass of people that and that also watch TV, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> that want to have these conversations. And there was a proliferation of other things like New Inquiry and journals that are popping up here and there. And just the more, the better of, of having these conversations in different registers to counter the fact that, like you guys have been talking about on other episodes of the show, there's a corporate authorship really limits the range of discussion that can come out there. And even shows that are really well-intended are often devolve according to the market. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have any money or any, you know, widespread stage to be heard, but we can have the freedom to say what we want and also to interpret the culture that has implicit really interesting meetings and to claim it for ourselves mm -hmm. as people who want liberation and who, you know, want to have more complex discussions about things to claim something that could be read really hollowly. Often when I read reviews of films and TV that I like, it's, you know, really reductive. And so to have even the space and length to, to go deeply into like what we want. And you find whenever you just try to have a conversation with somebody, either in academia, who's not in your field, if you start a conversation about film, like everybody wants to talk about it, <laughs> or somebody who's an activist, but like likes to read books, you know, if we could just increase that cultural conversation, I, I hope that would evolve into ideally like a, just a different culture, cultural revolution as Jameson would talk about or something like that. <laughs> that was Joanna Isaacson and Madeline Lane McKinley. For a bibliography of works discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash cringe. In our final episode of this season, I'll be joined by Aaron Beatty, Michelle Chihara, and Sarah Mesley to talk about House of Dragon, as well as the broader landscape of franchises in the streaming wars. Until then, here's the snarling yarns with this season's theme, Don't Go Fishing. I'm there's nothing but heartbreak where the ball's from hell. Nothing but heartbreak where the ball's from hell. So when your eyes do wander and your heart does ponder, don't you, sister, don't you even wonder when your hands do touch and your heart does flutter.
company beer Cause you know where that'll get you, dear I don't go fishing off the company beer There's nothing but heartbreak where the bar's from hell Nothing but heartbreak where the bar's from hell Nothing but heartbreak with a boss from hell. Nothing but heartbreak with a boss from hell. 